right in the sun. Uh, do, do I have a halo over me? <laughs> My wife just said no. <laughs> no, you don't. You definitely don't. <laughs> uh, so a few years ago, um, I walked into the living room of our apartment, and in the middle of our living room was this gigantic, I mean gigantic pile of old Legos that a, a friend of ours had found in their attic and had thought that they would it would be a good idea to give it to our kids. And so, so all three of our kids were there in the middle of the pile, sort of playing and, and sorting through, through all of it, um, just having a great time. A few days later, however, uh, the pile was still there, and now it was just our youngest son, Ezra, who was there in the pile. And with his older siblings off doing other things, he wanted me to help him sort through the pieces and, and to play with him. So there I was on the floor digging through these old Legos and honestly having a pretty good time. Like, oh, like I played with this Lego when I was a kid. Um, and so I was, I was trying to match them up and collect them in, into a pile. And, and at some point, Ezra reached across to, uh, to, to grab some pieces from the pile that I had been gathering and, and I immediately said, no, don't touch those. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and he looked at me rather confused and was like, why? You know, he's like six years old. <laughs> Why? And I said, because I'm collecting them. And as if it were like in slow motion, I heard the rest of the words coming out of me saying, so you can play with them. Um, and he looked even more confused. And so with his fi little fist full of, of, of these Legos that I had been collecting, he said, I'm just going to take these. <laughs> Like, I'm not quite sure what's going on with Dad. Right? I mean, this was the game. Like, this was why I was on the floor, was to, to be with my son, not to build my own Lego kingdom for myself. And somehow, in the midst of all of this, I had, I had lost the narrative. Like, I had, I had lost the bigger picture as to what was going on here. I'm here to be with my son. Like, that's sort of the, that's the point, right? Well, well, today is Pentecost, which, again, is a day uh, each year when we celebrate God's Spirit moving. And, and in particular, God's Spirit moving through the beauty and the diversity of humanity and really of all of creation. And this movement is an ever-expanding movement of inclusion, but sometimes, as we do, we miss the larger story or we, we lose the narrative. So the larger story of Pentecost begins not in the book of Acts. It begins in the beginning, oddly enough, where God created the heavens and the earth in the book of Genesis. And God created humanity to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with God's love and inclusive welcome. God creates everything to flourish to grow, to expand outward in increasing goodness, in increasing beauty, creativity, and love. This is God's project. The goal is ever-increasing diversity. But then, just a few chapters later, we arrive at Genesis 11, and we're told that the world had one language and one common speech, which, in a world of increasing diversity, sounds rather boring. So, let's listen to the rest of the story uh, in Genesis 11. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. 
They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower they were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't know about you, but the question that comes to my mind is, why is God concerned about the unlimited potential of humanity? Like, why is God concerned that we might be able to do anything we want to do? I mean, isn't this what we say to our kids? You can do anything if you put your mind to it. You can do anything if you work hard enough. Isn't this a good thing? Isn't this a value? Well, maybe. I guess it's somewhat debatable. But with all of this potential... And with one voice, what they do do is they say, come, let us make bricks. And bricks in the Bible is sort of like oranges in the Godfather movies, if you, if, if you know what I'm talking about. Vito Corleone is buying oranges just before he's ambushed in the streets. Carlo is wearing an orange suit when he's beat up by Sonny. Sonny passes a sign with an, uh, an orange juice sign just before he's shot. Michael Corleone has an orange in his hand when he dies, and there's like millions of other scenes in those movies where oranges precede violence or death. So this is important. If you ever find yourself in a Godfather movie, avoid oranges at all costs. Like, don't eat the orange. And the Bible is, is similar when it comes to bricks. Bricks are also this ominous sign because it was in Egypt that Pharaoh said, let us make their lives bitter with hard labor, making mortar and bricks. Pharaoh saw the flourishing population of the people of God, not as a blessing, not as a good thing, but as a threat. So bricks in the Bible equals slavery. Bricks in the Bible equals injustice. Bricks in the Bible equals oppression for some people. Bricks means that those who are in power are actively working against the flourishing of creation for their own gain. That's what bricks mean. So with one voice, let us make bricks is the use of our human potential for injustice. With one language, they said, come, let us make a name for ourselves so that we might not be scattered. Their focus on the building of their own Lego kingdom Turn quickly to fear. So the bricks, with the bricks, they built walls to figure out who's in and who's out. With bricks, they built to the heavens in an attempt to place their city 
or their nation or their state as equal with God. This actually, oddly enough, for, for a story written thousands of years ago, is one of the earliest challenges to religious nationalism. Likely in the empire of Babylon, where God's people were exiled and oppressed. The separation of, of faith and the state in history almost always begins as an ideal of the minority. Those people who are being oppressed, those people who aren't able to worship in their way, they're the ones that want a separation of church and state, right? God's people longed for the freedom to practice their faith and to be who they were while exiled and oppressed in Babylon. And so we have this story. Reformation leaders like our own John Calvin, who is sort of the foundation of our Presbyterian denomination, wanted freedom from the abusive political power of the Catholic Church at the time. The separation of church and state here in the United States comes from those who came to the colonies because they wanted to escape the persecution of the Church of England. But what also tends to happen in history is that those who support separation of church and state often change their tune once they become the majority, right? Like, do you see how this happens? Some of those who longed for this religious freedom in, in Babylon returned from exile to Jerusalem and started anti-immigration movements of their own. Movements that, that oppress. This is what the book of Ruth is challenging in, in the Old Testament, beginning to oppress those who were foreigners and mistreat them. Once John Calvin gained power in Switzerland, he supported capital punishment for those who disagreed with his theology. On baptism or on any other number of things. And you're like, what? And here in the United States, we've had and we continue to see a strong Christian nationalist movement. Now, be before anybody gets too mad at me, um, I mean, you, you might still get mad at me, I don't know, but, but let me just say that, that patriotism and nationalism are not the same thing. I hope this is a helpful definition. Patriotism, at its best, is an appreciation for the many good things about our home country or the country that we live in that motivates us to celebrate and work toward our ideals of equality, of justice, of human flourishing. Like patriotism can be a really powerful and uniting force for good. Nationalism, however, is a corruption of patriotism. It's a perversion of patriotism that elevates our own nation as superior to others and focuses on our own self-interest, usually at the expense of others. And so nationalism, whether it's in Babylon or in Jerusalem or in Switzerland or here in the United States, it tends to lean towards inequality and injustice because of, of the way that we elevate ourselves. And this just doesn't happen globally. It actually happens internally in, in our country because nationalist movements tend to define national identity according to one language or ethnicity or religion or culture. Like what it looks like to be a true American is a Christian or of a particular party or Anglo-Saxon or a Protestant, whatever it might be. Does, does any of this sound a little bit like the Tower of Babel story? 
like defining who we are based on, on who I am, specifically who I am, not necessarily who any of you are. Christian nationalism, so you, Christianity and nationalism, you combine them together, what you have then is a corruption of both Christianity and patriotism. It's an oxymoron, sort of like awfully good or a one-man band, right? Like, it just doesn't quite fit. We can't follow Jesus' way of love in the world while at the same time elevating or prioritizing ourselves over everybody else. First of all, elevating Christianity specifically, for those of us who are Christians, to a special place in our society it obviously isn't fair to people of other faiths. It obviously isn't fair to atheists. It obviously isn't fair to anyone else whom we're called to love as much as we love ourselves. So there's that. But secondly, it's not fair to us. It's not fair to Christians because the very act of elevating ourselves over others corrupts our faith like through and through so thoroughly that Jesus is left out. And all that we have left guiding our politics or our country or whatever it is, is a corrupt and abusive religion. That's what we're left with when it comes to nationalism, whatever religion we're talking about. Now, I hope you don't take this too personally, but honestly, we're not that special. (laughs) Like, I mean, we're special, right? Because we're like all created in the image of God, like infinitely valuable but we're not that special. Christians in the majority fall into the nationalist trap just as much as anybody else. Like, we're not that special. Just ask Germany. Just ask so many countries around the world. And when the Gospel of John says, for God so loved the world, it doesn't continue with, but mostly Christians. I mean, so here we are. We're, we're now in a position of power reading a story written by people who are in a minority, written by people who are in a position where they're being abused, where their freedoms are being limited to worship the way they want to worship. And we're reading the story now from a position of power and privilege. We're reading this from the position of the majority. So here we are building our own Christian Lego kingdom, whatever that looks like. Here we are, reading this story right in the middle of all of the ways that we foolishly elevate ourselves above others for our own benefit, for our own comfort, for our own security. Right here in the middle of a story about human failure in general, the story says, God came down. God came near to us in our failure. The central act of the story is God coming close to us, not pulling farther away from us, but coming close to us to move her creation project forward with an explosion of different languages and different cultures, moving on from this one location outward into the whole world. The same thing happens at Pentecost in the book of Acts. At the other end of the Bible, the coming of God's Spirit is not a return to one language. Instead, God's Spirit is speaking in and through the beautiful diversity 
of many languages in and through people from all over the world. The different languages are a gift. Our different cultures are a gift. Our different perspectives are a gift. The movement of God's Spirit is a multicultural, multilingual movement of liberation, equality, and justice for all. The people are scattered, and the slaves making bricks are set free. The people are scattered, and God's inclusive love becomes a global movement and not just a local movement. The people of God are scattered, and here we are, Today, all of us gathered here, a community of people from different places, different backgrounds, a few different countries, a few different languages with different perspectives and different interests and different skills, different insights, different experiences in one of the most diverse cities in the entire world. Here we are experiencing the gift of Pentecost, experiencing the gift of God scattering us around the world so that we might be increasingly beautiful and diverse. Here we are on this Pentecost Sunday, invited by God's Spirit to flourish. To flourish. To flourish by participating with God in her ever-growing, ever-expanding movement of liberation and love. Please pray with me. God, thank you for drawing near to us in our successes and in our failures. Thank you for drawing near to us. We pray that your spirit would be a move among us today, in us and through us out into the wider world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.